some done lyrics. But um, since it's Advent, we're heading towards Christmas, I thought it would be good to read a poem that's in the spirit of Advent. I, those of you who've been here now for a year, I think would have remembered this from last year because I read this, I think, last Advent. Um, Following my practice, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna say very little about this, but I, I want to make just a couple of comments. I'm gonna let the poem speak for itself. You can read it at your leisure. But a couple of things. If you go back to the Bible, you know, we, in a number of times we've referred to the um, the David episode in the Old Testament. Remember when he um, when he tricks? I think it's Uriah, 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 Bathsheba's husband. Um, puts him out in the field where he can. Um, die, but he has um, sex with her. It's an adulterous relationship because he's married or she's married and and to cover his tracks, he puts her, he puts Uriah on the doorstep um, to cover his tracks in case she does get pregnant. And none of that's looked into. All we have is a, is a bare few sentences describing what happened. So unlike the plays that we've been doing or the, or the epics, we don't go into the inner life. But if you look at David, it's impossible to look at him without seeing, first of all, he's a murderer and he's cunning. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I want to, because this is where we're going with Hamlet, this whole question of cunning in our modern world, but none of that's rendered. We either understand that it's there or we don't. And if we do understand it, we can't go into it because nothing's said about it. So we can't look at the, the workings of his mind. Um, it's hard to figure out just how cunning he was. I, I, I suspect that it's not nearly as cunning, let's say, as Hamlet or Iago or the moderns, because we live so much in our heads. Um, but we, that's the sort of thing we get in the Bible. We, we don't... We don't go into interior worlds very much, certainly the way we have in the plays that we've been reading. One of the wonderful things about Eliot's Journey of the Magi is that he fleshes that episode out. And he does it in modern, in a modern idiom. So he locates this experience that is 2,000 years ago in our time so that we can relive it now. The language is ours. The idiom is ours, and even in some ways, the, the, the things that stand out are ours. They belong to our age in a way that wasn't true of the kings. Um, this is going to actually fit in with some of the things we're going to do with, um, with Shakespeare tonight when I, when I take a minute to talk about what Shakespeare's doing with time. So just notice that one of the values of that, this poem is that it shows that for Eliot, the, the journey of the Magi is contemporary. It's real for anybody who wants to enter into it in the Christmas season. The time, that time back then is alive now for anybody who enters into it. And remember we've been saying all along that one of the things that the poet does is um, help us to enter into other times, to carry the past forward, to make it current, that was especially true in Dante because remember in Dante, for God, there is no past or future. It's all an eternal present. If God calls us to see things the way he does, then it should be a serious question how often we really enter into the present the way we're asked to do. And I'm saying that really serious because you know from our work on the epics 
But most of the people in the ancient world lived in the past, in wombs. So one of the great chores facing all those epic heroes was coming, bringing their wounds out of the past, coming into the present. Because most of us either live in wounds, we don't give them up, or we live in hopes. But living in the, or in the present, that takes a lot. So what Eliot's doing in this poem is taking us back to that moment or bringing it forward, however you want to look at it. But it becomes contemporary with us. Okay, so T.S. Eliot, Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it. Notice that, I mean, that language, a cold coming. You, you wouldn't hear that from the original kings. This is us. The poet is now speaking for us. He's, he's making this our experience. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for the journey, in such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women. And the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the city hostile and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying, but this was all folly. You can hear the note of almost despair or disillusion. It's cold, they're uncomfortable, they're suffering all the time, they're surrounded by misery. We don't get any of that in the Bible. Um, but here it is. This is us. And, and in some ways, more importantly, when you're, when you're in, a, in a period of suffering, the good times that you have, you almost wish you didn't have because they make the suffering worse by contrast. You know, you said the summer palaces and slope the terror. There we regretted all of that. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snowline. <coughs> smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. <coughs> then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place it was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen births and death but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death.
Just a very quick review, because I want to, Karen has reminded me. <laughs> Pray for help, please, for me. <laughs> is that a nun's clapper? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> okay. Holy cow. Okay, a couple of things. Poetry. Last time we spoke, I'm going to do this briefly because I'm going to come to this um, and, and elaborate on it um, a little bit more. So I'll come back to this, but just briefly, one of the qualities to poetry that I went over last time was this quality we get from drama, which is that in drama, we're put in a position to look at things the way God does. We're outside of a whole action involving a whole community. We see all the interrelationships. So unlike one of the characters, right, the way we are in our life, because we tend to be self-centered, we tend to see things from our own perspective, God doesn't see that way, obviously. I mean, he sees inside of us and he sees holes much larger than our own. So the poet puts us there and he helps us to see what's going on in the external world, outside of everybody, and also what's going on internally. We go into Claudius's mind several times and we get glimpses of what's going on in his head and more than a few times in Hamlet. So he's teaching us to come out of ourselves in drama. That's not an accident. Shakespeare could have written narrative. He could have spent his life reading, uh, writing lyrics. He, did, he wrote, wrote lots of lyrics. And he has a long narrative poem, as a matter of fact. He wrote drama. I don't think that was an accident because drama gives us the most, the most complete, the most objective perspective on our human condition. Because to write it, you have to completely... In narrative, you can create a story and, and be the storyteller and talk about something. So your voice is always in it, right? In drama, it's not. In drama, you have to completely efface yourself. You have to put yourself completely away. How many of us can do that well when we're writing? To absolutely, absolutely get rid of our own feelings, our own ways of looking at things, to try to do justice to the characters in play. And not only that, but do it in a way that allows them to live out their own destinies, to suffer the consequences of their own choices, to not interfere, to not change it to fit what we think should happen, but to honor their free will and, and let the decisions they make play out. How hard, I mean, how easy is that for any of us? We look at the ways that we sometimes meddle in our relationships and you know, get involved when we shouldn't or, or not get involved when we shouldn't. In drama, Shakespeare's teaching us to stand a little bit, has to be a little bit like the way God does. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. We've been talking about the city again and again. We did Merchant of Venice and Othello, and we've seen that the city, the Venice, us, it's the, it's the prototype of the commercial regime. This is the prototype for our regime. We called it the Usuria city. It makes money off of the desperate situations people are in. It, it uses people to make money. So it's, it's the usurious city, the sterile city. It, remember, it breeds money. There's no breeding going on. No, breeding goes on in Belmont, not in Venice. And it was also called, I called it, the unreal city because it's based on fictions. Um, it, it's rooted in law, you've seen that but nobody in Venice understands the real ends of the law. 
For that court case to be resolved, Portia has to come in from outside. She's read Aristotle, so she knows what the ends of the law are. She can bring a judgment out of that case that nobody in Venice could. So we've seen one image of the modern city. In the last couple of weeks, we stepped out of Venice and came to Denmark, and now we're in a northern city. And I suggested that this is, again, an image of the modern city. And in, in, in two ways particularly. One is its totalitarian character. Claudius has to get control of everything. We've seen that. He puts Polonius on um, Hamlet. He puts Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on Hamlet. He puts Ophelia, Polonius gets his daughter to feel out Hamlet to see if she can get any sense of what it is that's upsetting him. So it's a very controlling, very suspicious. Um, behind it is this totalitarian spirit to want to control everything. And that means, more than anything, to control a person's soul. Because if you can't control that, how good is your control? So we're in the modern world, yeah? The, the, I mean, think about the whole effort of psychology to get to the depths of a person's soul and claim to know it. So Shakespeare's right on that threshold of looking into the modern world already. I'll, I'll come to that in just a second. And the second way in which it's modern is that it's a Reformation city. I said it's, it's no accident that um, Hamlet was a student at Wittenberg. Wittenberg was the university where Luther did his work. It's where he posted his theses. And one of the principal um, radical changes in the, in the Reformation from the traditional Catholic Church was the claim that our relationship with God was purely private. Um, in this play, um, the whole action turns on a private revelation. It's what the ghost reveals to Hamlet that nobody else is privy to. So in Hamlet, we enter into a northern reformation experience. What it means to have somebody have to deal with a private revelation when there's no way, once he's had that revelation, he can relate to the world at large. It absolutely isolates him. The, the ghost tells him his, his brother killed him, if Hamlet, and, and he says, avenge my death. If Hamlet were to take his uncle's life and then say to the people who, who accuse him of regicide, what happened, he would say, the ghost of my father told me to do it. They would all say he's nuts. So he's showing us the, the difficulty of, of making a private revelation or a personal relationship, private, with God, the basis of our way of relating to the world. Um, and he, entered it, he enters into it in a, in a depth in which I don't think any other writer has ever done before. So two things combined to, to make Shakespeare's reading of Denmark modern, just as his treatment of Venice. So we're in the modern world, and, and I want to explore that in a little bit more depth in a minute, but this is just my way of review. Quickly, we talked about Shakespeare's technique. Remember, I asked the question, um, Does Hamlet's meeting with the ghost occur before or after the Claudius' state of the union? I don't remember any of you jumping up then either. <laughs> what you all did was go back to your books. I don't remember that question. You know, you know that the revelation comes after that opening scene. And an interesting parallel to that was what Polonius does with his son, Laertes, when he sends him off to France. 
A scene later, we see Laertes talking with Raymond and telling Raymond to go spy on his son. Now, why does Shakespeare do that, those lapses? I, I really believe, like Homer, we talked about Homer, the way he does that with, with Hector, remember? That, um, like the people in Plato's caves, we're too often taken by appearances. We, we take appearances for reality when it's not. So if we've been reading that way, we would, we would assume that Claudius is this extraordinary statesman-like ruler. He seems so efficient, so capable in that um, State of the Union address. But it, if we look back at that address in light of the Revelation, because now we know he, he's a murderer and he usurped the throne, and we go back and look at that State of Union with those eyes, Suddenly we see other things. I, I read that line where he tries to implicate everybody in what's happened. You know, he's a, he's a master. He's a subtle master at Machiavellian politics. What he does is so extraordinary to watch. And the same thing happens with Polonius. So Shakespeare's locating us in the cave, setting us there so we can learn that we've been fooled. That we took things according to appearances and actually didn't see the way things really were. That's just one technique. I mean, there's lots, but this, this is not a place to go into. The other interesting thing for me in the play, just in terms of Shakespeare's technique, remember that line when, um, when Shakespeare is talking with Rosencrantz and Guildenser and Polonius comes on stage, and he said, here comes Jephthah, Jephthah from the Old Testament. And um, when he talks with the players, he reads, he memor he recites that long passage from Virgil's Aeneid when Pyrrhus kills the old king. Um, there's a scene involving him and Polonius when Polonius, they're talking about acting and literature, and Polonius said he acted um, um, Julius Caesar. And he, and, he, and he specifically comments on that scene where he says, I acted Julius Caesar and Brutus killed me. Well, who kills Polonius in this play? Hamlet does, which makes him Brutus. There's another scene where he's talking about, thinking about his mother and wanting, he's acting for protection because he's so angry at her, so furious at her. And he says, keep me from being Nero, because Nero killed his mother. So all the way through this play, Shakespeare's writing sentences in which these illusions occur, and every one of them is appropriate. Jephthah, remember, sacrificed his daughter. So Hamlet's use of that, that um, epithet, that illusion, wasn't accidental. He was revealing something about Polonius that Polonius wouldn't have seen about himself, because Polonius is certainly not a self-reflexive person. So what, why did Shakespeare do that? Because in one sense, he's trying to show us things don't change that even if technologically we are far superior as a people than people were 2,000 years ago, morally, spiritually, we suffer under the effects of the fall. The fall is on us. Um, it's in us, it's on us. We have to struggle with our failings. We've got killings going on all the time, violence going on all the time. Um, fathers who willingly use their daughters or, or mothers who do what Gertrude did. So um, he's not, I don't know how to describe it, he's not quite collapsing time, but he's certainly showing that with respect to our moral, spiritual lives, that 
there's a simultaneity in time that the past is not behind us. It's very present. We carry it in and we repeat it. Um, and remember, one, one of the great themes of um, the epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, was the hero had to bear a burden to help a people come out of its disorders, to come out of the past. And every one of them, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, brought, their, brought the whole action of those epics into a present moment, into the now, not, not, not before, not after the now. Remember, Achilles comes into the present, and Odysseus and um, Penelope make love, and Athena stops time, remember? Um, so Shakespeare's aware of these things. That the quest, One of the questions we have to ask is, does Hamlet answer all these disorders of the past? One of the questions I'm going to ask at the end, when we get there, is um, his father gives him this quest. Every hero we've dealt with from the beginning, Dante, Achilles, Virgil, I mean, uh, Aeneas, Odysseus. Every one of them had a divinely appointed task. They had to do something with a divine order to help resolve these disorders of, of, of the people that they were a part of. Yeah. Does Hamlet do that? We, he kills the king at the end. We have, does, he, does he come into the past or I mean into the present or not? Now remember, one, so one of the other time elements of this play, his father belonged to an old warrior code. Every time we have descriptions of him, either in the beginning or that scene when Hamlet is um, scourging his mother, he, he picks up that picture of his father and sets one next um, of Claudius next to it and said, put these two men together, what do you see? He described his father in the noblest terms. He's a warrior, a fighter, a man of courage. We know he took the fort in Brosslands. He was a warrior. Hamlet's a Christian student. He's probably had theology. We know he reads literature. And we know he reads the Bible. He is, he is the consummate Renaissance man. He can play an instrument. He, he can quote verbatim verses from Virgil. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the New Testament. He, he fights. He fought the pirates. He goes into the fencing match and almost embarrasses Laertes, he's so good. So he's a consummate Renaissance man, and, and a Christian, and a Christian. And there's nothing to suggest his father was. His father, symbolically in the play, his father belongs to an old warrior coat. And we know that Hamlet identifies with it because he keeps berating himself for not just taking a sword and killing the king, over and over and over and over again. But we know it isn't because he doesn't have the courage. Um, he's, he's like Achilles and Odysseus. Remember when they got angry at themselves when they were um, when they were threatened with death by water? All of them, all of them. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Telemachus, all of them were scathing in their contempt for themselves at the thought that they would die by sea or water. Because remember how important Cleos is. That that everybody's been put on earth to fulfill. There's something to do, something to do. Um, so Hamlet looks back to that warrior code and he carries it forward. The question is, does what he does at the end take him back? Is this a an act of vengeance or is it something else? How are we going to look at that ending? That, that's ahead of us, but that's a major question here. So with respect to time, is that clear? Every one of the poets we've been reading is so aware of time. How 
morally, psychologically, spiritually. We live in the past. Remember in the Odyssey, everybody's trapped in the past. They won't, they won't let go of their wounds. The, the great burden for us is, how do we go forward? Does Christianity offer us something that other beliefs don't? Um, so it's an important, it's an important issue here when we look at the whole story. <coughs> the genres. Do you all have that genre sheet? I, I, I printed out just so you can have it. I'm not, I'm not going to take any time of this. We've gone over it already, but just to remind you, the lyric called the topos, the terrain is the garden, and the voice is the eye. The poet speaks in his own voice, usually declaring his love for the beloved. And it encompasses the whole range of our experience from anticipation, consummation, lamentation, death. But in the lyric, we, we're, 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 let, we're, we're allowed into the poet's soul so that we can see more clearly what for us is always very obscure because our emotional life is in darkness. It's hard to see into it. The lyric poet tends to take us into that world to help us see it more clearly, to feel it. Um, the, the, the center of the lyric is complete love. It, it's the complete love of the garden between Adam and Eve, and between Adam and Eve and God. Um, and all the things that happen with it, anticipating, con consummating, lam lamenting the grief when we lose it. But behind all of it is that garden wholeness of love. Tragedy occurs when the garden is lost, the fall takes place, and in the tragic hero, you're shown somebody who, who loses that order and who falls into this darkness. The, the, tra the tragedy is always about individual responsibility, that some individual has to bear these awful burdens. He, he is noble, he tends to bear things other people can't, but that fact isolates him. Achilles, when he withdraws from the war, yeah? Odysseus at sea, Aeneas in the underworld particularly there, but the loss of his homeland. One of the interesting things about the Aeneid is almost nothing goes on in the Aeneid that isn't communal. Because remember for Virgil, Rome is different from Greece in giving less importance to the individual than the common good. That's what Rome was committed to. But there's still that darkness for Aeneas. So he passed from the tragic world into comedy, comedy, Odysseus was the paradigm early on, long-suffering Odysseus. Comedy takes us into a world of enduring, of hope, of looking forward to coming out of the tragic world. So it always points towards happiness or joy. It's pointing towards the garden. The epic is always about a battle. It's either inside or outside, and all the epics that tended to be, the focus tended to be outwardly, the Greeks and the Trojans, Odysseus with the suitors and all the elements, Aeneas with the Greeks, and then all of the racial tribes he had to meet in um, Rome. Um, the battle can also be inward. We learn that from Dante. But we've left a pagan world that gave um, the greater importance to outward, outwardness, outward seeming things, external things. In the Christian world, we move inward because after Christ, the spiritual life that we carry within us is far more important than the way we appear to the world. So the whole, the shift that takes place in Dante is from an external world inward. We're to learn the nature of our soul. Sin, this 
the grace, purgation, all of that, and finding forgiveness in the paradiso. So the battle is an epic battle for a people, a whole people, to return to a new order. The whole purpose of the battle is to try to answer these disorders, clear the injustices so that a new order can be returned. So if you look at all of the genres, they, they include the whole of our experiences from the loss of the, the original love, the loss of that love, the anguish that man experiences, the struggle to get back. So it's from the garden to the, to the city, to the new city. Remember, the new Jerusalem in the Revelation is almost like a garden. It's, it's, it's half as much like a garden. It's not like our modern city-states. Now, our focus here has been on tragedy. Let me stop here because I want to, we're going to, this is going to be, to me this is the most important thing that we can take out of this, these two works that we've done, Othello and Hamlet. Um, any, any questions on any of that before we look at tragedy and what tragedy is more closely? James, I have never known you for five minutes not to have a question. I, I have a lot, but I'm in this class setting, so. <laughs> Narrow it to one. Uh, Do you have one? I don't want to, if you don't, I don't, but me, if you let do. Let me refine it, let me refine it, because it's not, it's not a good question. Oh, God. It's not a good question, because it's... It is a good question. Come on, let me hear it. What is it? Let me hear it. Don't refine it. What is it? Let me hear it. What's on your mind? No, I need to refine it to, to find the words to, to say it. Because, oh, 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 one of my questions is, when you look at the, the dichotomy between tragedy and comedy, comedy is finally a turn to joy, tragedy is a turn in recognition. What does the recognition mean? You're going, your question's going right and pointing to right where we're going, so let go. me see if what we're going to do doesn't answer that. All right. If it doesn't, come back, bring me back to that, okay? All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay. This is going to be, this is going to take some doing here. Um, you remember right from the beginning, I've been claiming that we don't read very well. That very often we think we're smart and we've got answers and that we read things very well. And one of the major themes that runs through every work that we've read is how poorly people read. If we look at Dante's Divine Comedy as a paradigm, we can see that for Dante, None of us will ever learn how to read until we go down into hell, till we learn to see our sins, to feel a contrition for the evil that we carry in us, go up purgatory, begin to repent those sins, and then do it. Because in that act of purgation, our, the blindness is cleared. We, we begin to see in truth and in love. But so long as our pride is in the way, we're blind. We just don't read well. So if we take Dante as a paradigm, in a sense we have an answer to the problem that I've been pointing out from the very beginning. Because in every work we've read over and over again, I've been pointing out scenes where Achilles or Hector or Agamemnon or Odysseus, it doesn't matter, even, even Aeneas, Hamlet here, that, that there are major moments of misreading something that has consequences on the lives of these characters. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a generalization and then see if I can make sense of it because 
It's really important, I believe, that we cannot understand these tragedies well if we don't understand the nature of tragedy. And I think for the most part in our modern world, we've lost a tragic sense. I'm saying this all very, very seriously. This stuff is dear to my heart. We've lost a tragic sense, and I think that's, um, that's a spiritual loss for us, that, that we don't have the depth of seeing things that we should, particularly given our religious beliefs. So the generalization I'm going to make at the outset is this, that the modern mind is diseased. How's that for a happy thought? The modern mind is diseased, and it's one of the reasons I don't think we read tragedy very well, and it's one of the reasons why we don't have a, a healthy tragic tradition. Now let me try to make sense of that. What do I mean, the modern mind is diseased? According to St. Thomas, <clears throat> the object of the intellect is being. God, this is so important. It's so fundamental, so important. The object of the intellect for St. Thomas is being, being itself. But being as it's differentiated through essences. Now I want to repeat that again because it. That's probably heavy medieval language, but the object of the intellect, according to Thomas, is being. That the object of the intellect is I am that am, being itself. Yeah? But as humans, we grasp being through the essences of things. Okay? Our senses, do our senses grasp essences? No, our senses grasp particular things. This cup, this Right? They're all singulars, particulars, right? Um, either there's a difference between the senses and the mind or there isn't. The nominalists say there's no difference. And the nom I think the nominalists are really wrong and experiences will show it. But our senses grasp concrete, physical, individual things. The mind, through its powers of abstraction, grasps the essence of those things so that the mind could grasp the being of a tree, a dog, a human, a plant, whatever it is. Now, we've seen this in really important ways all the way through the course, not only in the, ep in the epics that we've been reading, but in the, particularly in the lyrics. Because what we've seen in the lyrics is what? What do the poets grasp? The poets grasp Christ in a tree, in a fire, in a bird, in a four-year-old girl pricking herself. Right? We've been seeing being something beyond the senses in every one of the lyrics we've been reading. Give me another example. A fire going out, the plowman. Aren't those just metaphors in some of these? Huh? Aren't those just metaphors in some of these? I mean, yeah. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Holy cow, wait a minute. No, because I, I want to be careful now because I, I don't want to, I really want to get on. When we read the wind hover, and the, remember the wind hover was flying through the air and then it buckled? And the whole point of the description after that was Hopkins was saying that in that moment he saw Christ. That was a a moment in which the bird participated in the crucifixion. That's not metaphoric, it's real. It's an act of participation. The same thing with a young four-year-old girl in Supernatural Love, you know. In Shakespeare's Son, it's the fire going out or whatever it happened to be. What the poets are showing us is the being of things. Whatever particular thing it was, because all things participate in being. 
Now just hold on to that for a second. So according to Thomas, the object of the mind, the natural object of the mind, is being. That's what our intellects are for. In the modern world, we've lost the sense of metaphysics, so we no longer believe that. In the modern world, we're trapped in a world of our senses, basically. So Thomas says the object of the mind is being, as it's diversified through essences. The object of the scientist, after Copernicus, the revolution, the object of the scientist is reality um, um, as it's quantified in abstractions, in mathematical abstractions. So what the scientist sees it is removed a degree from being because being is takes the form of an abstraction that's quantifiable, that's measurable. We put it that way. The scientists don't believe in being either. So according to the sciences, we're left in a world of abstractions. That's what the mind grasps. But abstractions that are quantifiable. Um, the object of the mind for Freud, just to take one specific one, the object of the mind for Freud is man's, this is at the essence of Freud's theory. Um, are man's polymorphous perverse instincts, by and large sexual. Polymorphous perverse. Because Freud believes that the essence of man are all these animal perversities, these instinctual perversities. They're determined. He doesn't believe in free will. They're fixed. Um, the whole point of therapy is to get past the repressions, to get to them, to see them, and then begin to do something with it. But The object of the Protestant mind <coughs> is man's depravity. Because remember, according to the Protestant, man's essence was ruined. Luther, Calvin. Um, according to the Protestant mind, the effects of the fall were complete. In the fall, man ruined his essence. So look at this. When you take a look at the modern world, what do we see anymore? Here's, here's Iago's line. We read this. I mean, we talked about this. You don't have to go back, but Iago, remember in that scene when they first arrive at um, Cyprus, and Iago makes that sort of unflattering remark about Amelia and Desdemona says, so how would you flatter me? And his response is, oh, gentle lady, do not put me to it, for I am nothing if not critical. He's an image of that in us which can do nothing but criticize. Later, when he, you know, when he starts working Othello's mind with those insinuations, he says, Though I perchance am vicious in my guest, as I confess, it is my nature's plague to spy into abuses, to spy into abuses, and off my jealousy shapes faults that are not. Let me put it differently. Does Iago in that play once see anything good and love it? doesn't. Remember Iago's call, he calls him and says, I am, I am that I'm not. I'm not what I am. I'm not what I am. I can't remember the words, I'm not what I am. 
That's the antithesis of I am that am. Iago represents an anti-Yahweh. I mean, it's the principle of evil. What is, what is Satan called? Another name for Satan, the accuser. The accuser. Everything in the modern world has made it easier to either find faults in other human beings or to tear them down. Because what we see, what the object of our mind is, is negative, dark, perverse. That, I, let me just go back to the lyrics again. From the very beginning, when I read The Wind Hover, or the you know, Supernatural Love, or, or Hopkins' um, Kingfishers Catch Fire, with the stones tumbling down, remember, everything speaks its name. No poet could write a poem like that who didn't go to the being of things. Put this another way. How many of us find the logos in nature? God created us in his image. His stamp should be everywhere in creation. How many of I mean, the whole point of this course has been to try to open it up to, to find where Christ is everywhere. Every one of the lyrics that we've been reading have given us an image, not just metaphoric, an image of God's presence doing something in the world. I mean, the argument from the beginning in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, is every one of those poems is an intimation of the second coming, of the, the, the return of the king. So the world is flooded with God. Do we see him? Your life changes when you live Logos, because yes. that happened to me. Yes, yes. When I, you take it from how could just, it not? When you take yes. it from a definition and actually live it, yes. it does change you. Yes, yes. I couldn't agree more, Marcy. But all of these stories throughout history have only shown one thing, the, the nature of man, good or bad. It's not like they suddenly found something in the, in the 13th century or 14th century that they didn't find before, as far as emotion and man's fault, you say man's faults, and to tear people down. That's been going on since man's been walking around and could communicate. Oh, well, I, see, I, 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 but I don't think that's true, Mark. Wait, wait. My, why well, but I... Christianity helped do a lot with that. Right. Because before, there, people would be, look at sexuality. Now, certain things are a sin where before they weren't. What did that? Christianity. Mm, I think things were pretty much, there were distinctions made way, way before that. Um, well, there were, the there were but not as much as defined as they are now. Wait, hold on. Let me, let, I mean, let me answer that because you're, you're raising a real issue. They were answered definitively with the tablets, first of all. And the tablets only made clear what thing, men had come to know in some way before that. Because if, if Paul's right, if Christ's right, all of this was written on our hearts ages at the very beginning of man. So it was always written there. The tablets make it explicit. If you look back at the codes for most people prior to the tablets, you can see these codes, all of them, the Tao in China. I mean, all of these ancient peoples had laws that go to the, the same sense of morality. They become really explicit with the tablets, and then a whole dimension of them is revealed when Christ comes. But, but wait, I want to go back. I want to just stay with the literature here for a minute and keep our focus. Unless, I mean, if somebody wants to argue, we can do this later. I don't want to do it now, but, but one of the things you have to take very seriously in the epics that we've read, when you look at the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, the action of every one of them is towards the same. It's towards the return of a king. Now, why is that? Where did that come from? 
And, and the other question to keep in mind here, we asked it last week, in light of this same thing, one of the most important questions we can ever ask ourselves is, are our beginnings high or low? We've gone through this. Were our beginnings high or low for the ancient world? High. I mean, I hope everybody's clear about that. Because I'll come to that in a minute. What are, the, what are our origins for the modern mind? Absolutely low, out of nothing or apes. I mean, wherever you want to go with that. How does that alter the way that we look at each other? Now this goes to the, I mean, the whole purpose of this is to get to this thing called tragedy. The ancient people had a sense of tragedy because they had a sense of the nobility of man. He was high. Every, every hero we've dealt with in this class has been very noble. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante. And by the way, if, if this isn't, I mean, to make this really clear, the, the parousia is the great theme of the action of every one of those ancient epics. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. They all end with a king returning and bringing judgment. That was before Christ. Where did they get that? They had the sense of a nobility to man in some sense that he could fall, but he could also recover, which is the tragic paradigm. Look at Dante. Dante's the first Christian epic to fulfill that tradition. Remember, it's in the line of Virgil. He, Virgil's his guide, and then Beatrice. What does Dante do at the, at the top of Purgatory? Virgil crowns and miters him. It's the return of the king. He is finally himself again. But what does he do? What does he have to do to get there? He has to go into the depths of his soul. He has to learn to see the ugly, the worst things about our human nature that's possible. And he has to learn contrition. He has to see that there's this sin, this, this awful stuff at the root of our soul, and repent. So the whole journey of purgatory is taking on those sins and repenting them. What's the end result of it? He's crowned a priest and a king. It's the return of the, wait, it's the, return of the king. Except now, look at the difference. In the ancient world, when the king returned, what happened? I mean, the judgment was external. Wars took place. Achilles wipes out the Trojans. Odysseus kills a hundred suitors. Aeneas, you know, defeats Turnus and all the all the warrior people in in Italy. What does Dante do? He serves. He comes back to write his poem, but he writes it as now priest, prophet, king. So this view that we have of literature that we've been dealing with is, goes to the very nature of our sins, but it, but it also implies this tragic quality, this nobility that man has. When we've been reading Shakespeare, we've entered a tragic world. That's why I'm pressing this thing, because it seems to me if we don't see Othello as noble, we're missing something. If we don't see Hamlet as noble, we're missing something. Because these are both of these figures are extraordinary men. And Awful, awful things happen to them. And one of the questions we have to ask at the end of this our time today, at the end, when Hamlet kills Claudius, is it the same young man who received the supernatural task from his father's ghost? Avenge my death. Does he kill, Ham Does he kill Claudius in vengeance? Or is it justice? Because of his vengeance, we're still back in that code. So what, the way we read that ending is going to be really important. So how we read tragedy is really important. So I want to go to that next. 
That's a clarification question. Yeah. When you say that the, the origins of the ancients were from high and modern were low, do you mean just, because all we read about are the important people, right? Not, John, you know, not Johnny Bag of Donuts, right? These are kings and warriors and these are head honchos, okay? So of course they come from the gods. They're the chosen ones. I mean, the schmuck down there on the street, does he think he comes from the gods? I'm getting lost now, Mark. Are you in the ancient world now yes, or in the modern world, or both? world. I, I, I mean, I can see where if yeah. you're Achilles, you came from the gods, or you're yeah. a great king, and I mean, right. the gods have favored you, obviously, yeah. because you're a hotshot. Yeah. But, you know, that schmuck down there in the corner, you know, the, still, you the know, divine, you know, because if you, if you look at the genealogy of the gods, if you go back to the ancient world, what you see are the gods emerge from chaos and these other gods, and it's from out of these generations of the gods that humans come. So the humans come from a divine, a, a picture of a divine kind of generation. Um, Collectively, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and some of them, we know, I mean, they're explicit about it, some of them are the result of matings, explicit matings, because Zeus mates with, you know, a woman or so. But all of them are collectively, the human race, if you look at Aeschylus and Prometheus, um, it's really funny because the gods didn't want man to have fire and Prometheus gives it to him. It's one of the reasons he's punished. Because he makes man almost godlike with, with what he can do with fire and writing and words. And, um, because that's a, that's a divine, divine-like quality. Um, Anyway, think about how different that is from the modern world, because we come out of nothing, we come out of black holes, or we come from apes, or you know, it's evolution, or things like that. So, anyway, hold on to that, because right now what I want to do is return to the tragic paradigm, so we can get to, um, so we can get to handle Can you, going back to his question, can you think of that Whose question, Mark's question? As, yeah. That nobility as, as a potential. Can you explain that? I'm not sure what you're asking. What do you mean by well, that? Well, I mean, a pill, he's, a talking, is, he's talking about Joe Blow and whoever down the street that's really a nobody mm -hmm. compared to Achilles. Achilles, okay? Yeah. Well, it just so happens that Achilles may have had more skills or, or more he knowledge. Actually, he's actually descendant. I mean, the, yeah. the genealogy shows he's two, mm -hmm. I think two generations removed from Zeus. So, but, but, but there is a level of nobility that is passed down from the gods in everyone. It's just that some... You're asking whether there's a potential there? Yeah. 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 Or, but some people will have the opportunity to manifest a more noble lifestyle. Yeah. But a lot more. I mean, I look at, I mean, I'm a you know, historian by, by learning. So, I mean, history is written by the victors. <laughs> Always has been. Would you call, <laughs> you know, so, so, would you so. Call, would you call Homer a victor? Uh, they, wrote, careful, they, wrote, they wrote a story about him, yes. Go <laughs> <laughs> ahead. Well, so, so, I mean, the question, I don't have an answer to it. But, but I don't know if it is just that these noble great characters who were written about because they did great deeds, of course they think they descended from the God. Look at their divine right of kings and everything from the Middle Ages and uh, you know, the great experience of democracy now. I mean, we still have it in our world today, unfortunately, for certain things. But I don't know if they yeah. thought that or not. Um, yeah. I didn't see a sign up. 
Kieran's. <laughs> 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 um, I'm sorry, I sidetracked this. I'm sorry. Um, how to answer that? <sighs> I'm not dodging it, it's a different question. No, 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 question. I, 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 I sidetracked this. I know, yeah, no, but just if I can briefly. Um, lots of stories, lots of histories are written by the victors. The whole Whig history is an example of it, or the Tudor history that was written. Virgil was on the payroll. I mean, so, wait, wait, let me try to, because I want, I want to get on, but I want to try to, to at least give a partial answer to the question that the two of you are asking. I don't, I don't put Homer in that category at all. He was a blind man and poor and a, you know, he had nothing to gain. He wasn't serving a court the way that was true in the, in the Whig historian, say, or, and one of the one of the positions that I've been taking from the beginning is the poet stands outside of that cave um, that dominates the lives of so many people. And if we take seriously that all of us are in that cave, we're, you know, we're, it, it complicates the problem a lot. Let me just say this and then go on. Um, we can say safely that according to the ancient world, the origins of men were high and divine. There's also a mystery involved and. Homer doesn't answer it, but he, he certainly delineates it a little bit more finely. Achilles is obviously more noble than some of the people on the field, the, the, the grunts. In that scene in the, in the, scene in the Iliad, the third, the third book, I think, when Agamemnon tests the men, he says, Good, we're, you know, we're going home, and they go. Odysseus beats two classes of men. He beats, he, he beats the low class. And he speaks to the nobles because to do otherwise would be insulting to them. So even there, Homer is distinguishing between two classes of people, exactly the way you are, the, the grunts and the, the, the noble, the kings. Because the, you know, all, the, all the people have kings leading them. So I don't want to go past that except let me just say this. We, what we know from the Old Testament and what we know from Christ is that there's a, there's a difference in the gifts that people are born with. No, absolutely. I'm not, yeah. So, so hold on, hold on. There's, there's a difference because some people are very talented basketball players. Some people are very talented celloists or singers. Or I mean, the, the if any of you were at the at the concert last night, I mean, you, you know, the the what was his name? Julian. Huh? Julian Dovera. Julian just had. I mean, I, I couldn't help but stand up. I, I, he, he just, I told Suzanne after the concert that I felt like I had been lifted up and I was not where I was before. I was so moved by those performances that what, his name's Julian and Terry. Extraordinary. I mean, so gifted, those people. So by nature, and that was one of the problems we talked about in the Iliad, you know, by nature and convention, some people are more gifted than others. And one of the ways that Homer describes that is, or throws a light on it, is to show that most of the, the highest noble-born have a more immediate connection with the gods. They descend more immediately from the gods, but all people do. But remember, in the, wait, let me just, remember in the Old, Old and New Testaments, God chose out a people as his own. He favored them. So this whole mystery of divine will and nature, that the people are given different gifts. The one thing that Christianity does to, to sort of level that field is that people aren't led into heaven on the basis of their gifts. It's how they love and what they do, whether they follow Christ and make that love real in their lives. So, 
Some, some guy can make a million dollars as a basketball player and be the biggest SOB in the world. And somebody who's a peasant who loves the way Christ did will see glory. Um, but anyway, that's a, this whole mystery of, of grace and will and the divine will and the choices that God's make and, and how we receive different gifts, that we're born with different gifts, all different inclinations, different proclivities, is a, is a, is a difficult question. But the only point I wanted to make here is that, that we, we have lost a sense of the tragic vision and I want to try to make the ground for why so that it's easier to see that it's important to learn how to read tragedy here, if we're going to see it. Here, quickly. Give some time for Hamlet. <laughs> you and Karen. In tragedy, remember, I think, I'm not sure if I said this, tragedy does not mean a, a horrible accident. James Joyce gives this example of a young girl riding in a, in a cab in an open cab and a sliver of glass falling from a window above and piercing her and killing her immediately. The journalist at the time said, what a tragic accident. That's a bad, that's a bad use of tragedy. Because there was no cause relating the two. <clears throat> tragedy is, a, is an, an action that's fully coherent and whose causes are are integral, they're interrelated. Remember we've talked about the plot of tragedy, according to Aristotle, the plot is the soul of tragedy. All these episodes take place, this, 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 and all of these episodes, the plot, imitate an action. Now what did he mean by action? That all these episodes, the sequence of events, imitation action, by action, he clearly meant these external things, these things that we can identify, imitate an inward action which is not visible to us. So in the Iliad, if we look at the, every one of the epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, all have this trajectory. They begin here, what happens at the end reverses, and there's a turn in every one of them. Whatever happens here is reversed, whatever happens here is reversed. And what's at the center of every one of them? You already know. It's a peripatia and an anagnosis. A peripatia, a turn. The church calls it a metanoia. We go through our lives, something happened like Marcy described, that suddenly this notion of the logos can so take over that we begin to see things differently because we become aware all of this intelligibility and purpose and beauty and order, it's not an accident, it's present in everything, in a leaf, in a tree, in a bird, in a, not just works of art, everything in nature, because all of nature is a work of art to God. He created, he's the creator, he's the artist. So, every tragedy, um, shows an action going from good fortune to bad, good fortune to bad, but it always turns. And if you look at that sheet I gave you, the, the genre sheet with the wheel, can I borrow it for a minute, Pop? Yeah. Or here, oh, sorry. If you look at it, you'll see, oh, never, no, sorry, it's not. Um, every action, every plot begins with a problem, 
goes on to a complication, a crisis, a being you want, and a resolution. Every single Shakespearean tragedy follows this sequence. It has a problem, a complication, a crisis, a denouement, a resolution. What's the opening problem to Hamlet? Hmm? The death of King Hamlet. Yeah, the death, and more emphatically, the marriage of Claudius to his mother. I mean, that that so throws Hamlet off. Something in, in the terms of the player, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Hamlet calls it a prison house, and then he says it's an unweeded garden. Remember the the garden, the, the, the lyric. It's an unweeded garden. It's lost love. Um, it starts with the marriage of the king, the death of the old king, and the marriage with his wife. What's the complication? Ghost. 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 Yeah, the ghost. I'll, I'd also add, it's the ghost and that moment after the mousetrap, when Hamlet realizes that the mousetrap scene proves that the ghost was right, he could trust him, and then he wants to kill Claudius in that very next scene. Remember Claudius' is in prayer? But he, he says he can't because if he kills him, send him, yeah, send him to heaven. Because I think, I don't know if I've said this, because in that moment, I believe Hamlet puts his own soul in danger. Because for a human being to want to damn a man is to put himself in danger of mortal sin. Only God can decide the outcome. So that, and it seems like it's innocuous. Nothing's going on. There's no sword fighting. But at that moment, the, the motives for Hamlet's revenge darken. Right? He's supposed to avenge his father. Now it's not just avenging his father. He wants to damn him. Now, by the way, think about how different this is from the ancient world. Because this is one of the things that makes this place so modern. Who's there? Do we know who's there? The whole effort of the modern world is to get inside of a soul and presume to know the soul of another person. Um, in the ancient world, when men went to war, it was to conquer them. They just killed them. Did anybody, do we know of anybody in the ancient world who killed a man hoping to send him to hell? Doesn't happen. Othello, what world did Othello come from? A warrior world. He just defeated people. He enters that modern Venetian world and he enters the world of the intellect where people are cunning and they want to use their mind to destroy people. Iago, Claudius. We're in a very different world now from that ancient world. Very, very different. We're playing with motives. We're playing on the inside of a soul. Um, the crisis, um, I think, is when he kills Polonius by mistake. That unnerves the king. The king sends him to England. And it's then that Hamlet begins to have all these revelations. Um, the the denouement, I think, is the is the garden scene. I mean, sorry, the graveyard scene where he returns, and he has these strange meditations on death, and then, of course, the resolution is at the end when um, he he goes in for the fencing match and he kills Claudius. So, okay, now the point I want to make here is this: the Aristotle said that the two tragic emotions were pity and fear. We feel pity at the suffering of another because we identify with it. 
We've talked about this from the very beginning. In the Iliad, it was a dangerous. Patroclus went into battle. Why? He pitied the deaths of his companions. In Dante, we saw the great emotion that was a problem for Dante was pity. Remember, he passes out constantly, and he gets scolded by Virgil. And finally, at the end, there's that he kicks that guy and has no pity for him. And because pity has something self-serving in it. It's the difference between pity and love. In pity, we identify with the suffering of another, and we don't want to suffer ourselves. So in pity, we want to help. Pity is a natural emotion. The difficulty is that it can become arresting. People get stuck in it, just like fear. So for Aristotle, he said, the, the tragic emotion leads to, I mean, the tragic action leads to a catharsis, a cleansing, a purging of these two emotions. Because everything that makes us feel pity or fear is answered and a purging takes place, a catharsis. Now, if a purging takes place, what's left when, when pity and fear are purged? A restore, a restoration, a return of reason. The rational order. So every tragedy indirectly affirms a rational order, a purpose to things. Otherwise, why have a dating, I mean, a peripatia and an agnorus? Why, why return in the middle? Because everything that sets out is going to be answered. No tragedy, no tragedy ever ends in Shakespeare without the evil that was done being answered. Whatever injustice was is answered. It's a return to an order, a rational order, the place of the gods, the human order, some good, some virtue. But it's important to know that we can't, we can't have this catharsis, or, or the, the catharsis gets minimized if we take away the nobility. Because what produces this, well, put it this way. If somebody's nobler and he has all these great gifts, somebody's got these extraordinary gifts, and they're taken away, isn't the pity going to be greater than for somebody if you put two people next to each other and somebody doesn't have as much? What's our, here, put it this way. Set our pity for Christ next to our pity for a human being suffering. In some sense, there's no comparison. Christ was God. He didn't deserve to die. So for the, for the tragic effect to take place, we have to preserve this sense of the nobility of a person. If we take that away, we diminish the whole nature of tragedy. Because tragedy, remember, all of us were created in the nature of God. We were all created in His image. We carry that in us the nobility that was given to us in creation. The modern world has no sense of that humility. We have lost it. So we don't know how to read tragedy very well. Did it bring, is it refined? Good question. Okay. Wait, on, on something you just said, the, the whole idea about pitying Jesus Christ, isn't, if our ability, or pity is our ability to identify with someone, and, and the God's suffering, and, and the cause, whatever causes it, yeah. And our thoughts are not God's thoughts. How could we identify with Jesus Christ, especially with Him being perfect? Wouldn't that be beyond our, be beyond our, be beyond our ability to, mm -hmm. 
to fathom or pity? Yeah. I've got an answer to that, but let me, does anybody, anybody want to answer James's question? It's a good question. No, I agree with him. I don't pity Christ. Well, he not didn't say that. He, he, was, he, was, he wasn't arguing. He was asking a question. You're not. He's asking a question. Does anybody want to try to answer it? State the question. State it again, James. Well, yeah, just the whole idea of pity is based on that, at least in this conversation. Is based on you, that. you understand the difference that I'm making between pity and love? No, it, explain that. Maybe that's love, love, love is our, 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 the whole motion of our souls out to another for that person's good. So love in its best sense, as we've inherited from the Christian tradition, is self-sacrificing. Pity is different because there's an element of self-interest that we identify with the other. So our feelings go out for the sufferings because we, we share the sorrow with them. So shared sorrow. But here, so, but go to your question now. Just. Oh, well, I'm just saying our ability to, or at least our capacity to identify with Christ, it seems like we don't have that capacity. Especially if we're going to use in this conversation the idea of identifying with someone else's suffering, because we wouldn't be able to understand the justification for that suffering. Because to us, like you said, in a quantifiable way, uh, mathematically speaking, one plus one equals two, but to punish something for being perfect, one plus one equals three, and that makes no sense. Yeah, here's Dante's answer, if I can. Those of you who remember the Paradiso in book seven, when when Dante gave the explanation for Christ's crucifixion, he had that, that, those wonderful lines where he said, if you, the, 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 Jew, the Jews were punished for what they did to Christ, and it produced a paradox. If you go back to book seven in the, in the Paradiso, and Dante was puzzled by that. He couldn't understand why. Um, either what happened to Christ was justified or not. And Beatrice's answer was, if you, look at the, if you look at the person who was condemned, nobody was more unjustly punished or will ever be as unjustly punished as Christ because he was perfect. Mm -hmm. If you look at the nature assumed, nobody was more justly punished because he took on our sins by taking on our nature. That was the whole purpose of the crucifixion. It was to take on our sins because we couldn't. So I'm not sure if this is answering your question, James, but it, it seems to me one of the reasons we can identify with Christ that we couldn't if we were Jewish or Islam is because we, we believe that Christ took on our human nature and became man and made it possible not only for us to identify, this is the great paradox, not only for us to identify with him, but for him to identify with us that a God would actually take on our nature. So. It radically changes it. It, it. it makes pity possible for him, but it also makes possible a divine love that man couldn't come to on his own. And I think that's why those lines are so important at the, you know, at the end of the, all of the Gospels when he said, um, um, you, you've been my servants or you know me, now I call you friends, you know, and, and um, because servants don't know their own master, but you do because presumably they knew him then and loved him. And he gave them a new commandment to love as he did. So they were actually called to continue in their human nature, but begin to do something divine that had never been done before. Um, but that still doesn't answer his question. It does, because what Jesus, 
the whole capacity to identify with Jesus Christ came when he took on a human form. So we, in that sense, we got a common denominator. He's human, we're human. We have human. a partial we common denominator. But that's all you but need not, is a little bit of common ground. You don't need a whole ground because no two scenarios will ever be the same. Correct. We don't uh, define pity like you do because to us, pity is not a bad thing. I but never said you, it was bad, Lord But Jesus. when you talk about it, you caution all the time about don't do something for somebody out of pity. No, I and, never said that. No, no, I never, I never said that, Marcy. Well, then here, let me, define let, that more. Well, here, let me just define. Well, you know the definition. It's just it's identifying with the sufferings of another. Yes. It's the emotions going out. Right. The danger I've said is that I said I've said it repeatedly. Yes. Pity is a natural emotion. The danger to it is that it, it can become paralyzing. That's why. That's why all the artists have been dealing with it. I mean, why they've been taking the trouble with it, and, and that's why Aristotle is concerned with it. And that's, it's important to know if we're going to understand tragedy because it's at the heart of what happens in a tragedy. I, I don't think any of us will read a tragedy, whatever, Macbeth, Othello, Anthony and Cleopatra, Lear, you know, whatever they are, um, it's hard not to feel pity for the heroes. When we watched Iago work on Othello, and I, it's hard to believe you guys didn't feel pity for him. I mean, it was horrible to watch and fearful to see that how great a danger he was facing. Those are natural things. The question in, in, for us when we're looking at tragedy is can we see how that whole movement involving those two emotions, how, they, how important they are, are turned and a catharsis takes place. It's a natural emotion. I've said this over and over again, but it's also a dangerous emotion, both of them. Because we know fears can paralyze us. We can give, I mean, so much of therapy depends on helping people come out of their fears or emotions that become arresting. Um, How is pity paralyzing? Hmm? How is pity paralyzing? Because you can't get past it and you just, you stay there. We talked, we, this was, this was, <laughs> this was the great, I know it's not going to, this is, this is, this is the great concern of the, of the purgatory, if you remember. The law by itself is cruel. Mercy by itself, the pity for another, is disastrous. It's enabling. We, you cannot not know that enabling goes on in families and the harm that it does. So, and remember, we talked about this in the Divine Comedy. The great struggle for us, of hum two great struggles. The great struggle for us as, as humans was to order our loves. And to do that, to bring justice and mercy together. It's easy to be just. You set down rules. <laughs> and it's easy to be pitying. To be, you know, bringing them together is a, is a very, very difficult task. So if you pity someone, don't help them. You see, that's what I get when I listen to you. Well, that, then I'm sorry because... You don't get that? It's nothing in excess. Pity is, oh, let him ramble, it's okay. <laughs> What is going on in this table over here? I would say, I would say, you do need the prayers. <laughs> you do need the prayers. Out, 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 out of my class. Huh? I see no need to help him. Oh, I need help. I need a lot of help. Yeah, enabling kids who have parents who have kids that are on drugs or doing something, and, yeah. and the pity that I feel so bad for yes. them. They hurt. That they yes. do all of this. 
but you don't get past the point of pity, so they just keep yes. recycling those bad, the kids recycle those bad behaviors. Yeah. Whereas if you're just, then you go in and you say, nope, this is bad, get out of my house, go right. do something. Right. Or you're going here. That's a good, I mean, that, I think if, I, if, if I've emphasized it, Marcy, it's because I, and I've said this before, it's not because I don't believe it's a natural emotion, because I do, it's a natural and it's a good emotion. The danger is, is that it becomes arresting. And I believe we're in an, I think we're in an enabling age that our, our culture has reached that point where the, the sense of entitlement and enabling is becoming crippling to us as a people. So if, I, if I've stressed it, it's, it, I don't think I've misspoken about it. I stressed it because I think it's a really dangerous thing for us. We just, I mean, I thought Candy's, because we know how widespread, which he, the, the drugs, the amount of drugs in our culture, the entitlement, the violence in the cities, the drugs that go on. I mean, God, it's, it's a nightmare to watch. And you can even, even raise up to a less violent level, just the political correctness. You know, you don't want to hurt somebody. Right. Yeah, good for you, Candy. You can stay. <laughs> you can stay. Yay! Hamlet. Hamlet. Can everybody turn to the play? James, I hope that gave you at least a partial answer. Here, I've got, I just want to look at a couple of things quickly. Um, before we get to, I want to go quickly to the end, and, but I remember that passage where Polonius says to Claudius, I think I, I read it last time, and I can get to the heart of Hamlet. I can get to the very center of his soul. You all remember, or should I give you the quote again? It's Act 2, Scene 2, about line 155. I'm not going to read it, but Act 2, Scene 2. Take this from this, if this be otherwise. If circumstances lead me, I will find where truth is hid, though we're hid indeed within the same. This presumption that people can know the soul of another person. What the ancient wisdom teaches is that we can never know the soul of another person except in love. And how hard is that? Do we love the way we should? I mean, our whole call is to learn to love the way we should so that we can see another person enter into the life, become united with that person. The second, the, second the, the, the parallel of that is when Hamlet is talking with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to the players, and the players come back after the mousetrap scene. And, um, and this is Act 3, Scene 2, about line 1, about line 350. Act 3, Scene 2. Um, the the mousetrap scene has just been performed. Claudius has run out. He's given himself away. Hamlet now knows that the ghost can be believed. And um, his two friends arrive, Guildenstern and um, Rosencrantz. They want Hamlet to go see his mother because he's, what he's done is shaken everybody. Claudius is unnerved. He knows that something's wrong. His two friends come up and, and Hamlet says, play this recorder. About line 355, do you all have it? Um, I do well understand it. Will you play upon this pipe? My Lord, I cannot. I pray you, believe me, I cannot. Do you all have it? Mm -hmm. What page? Uh, 80. 80, page 80. Believe me, I cannot. I do beseech you. I know no touch of it, my Lord. It's as easy as lying. Govern these, vent these vintages with your fingers and thumb. 
Give it breath with your mouth, and it will discourse most eloquent music. Look you, these are the stops. But these I cannot command to any utterance of harmony. I have not the skill. Why, look you now, how unworthy a thing you make of me. You would play upon me, you would seem to know my stops, you would pluck out the heart of my mystery, you would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass, and there is much music, excellent voice, in this little organ. Yet cannot you make it speak? God's blood, do you think I'm easier to be played on than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will, though you cannot fret me, you cannot play upon me. It's the way in which we turn other people into objects, to use them. Remember, the modern equation is knowledge equals power. The more you know about something, the more control you have over it. That's the modern equation. Claudius shows that in spades. He, want, he wants to know everything because he believes if he knows it, he can get control of it. And here, I've got to pass. Here, this is the second one. Besides Polonius, we see his friends, Hamlet's critiquing his friends because they're presuming to have the same kind of knowledge. Quickly, turn to the end. Um, just a couple of things, and then I'm, I want to read the ending. And Act 5, Scene 1. The two grave diggers are graving a fee, they're digging a fee's grave, and they're joking. Um, and they have that joke about who, who outlasts more tenants, and one of them says, um, the hangman, and the other one says, no, you're wrong, it's the grave digger, because <laughs> they will occupy that house until doomsday. They're both laughing. Hamlet comes up, and he's a little bit upset. Remember now, something has just happened on the, on the channel crossing, and this is good to In every great story in literature, it could be Huckleberry Finn down the river, it can be in Jane Austen's novel. Whenever you take a voyage, in Jane Austen, it happens, when, when Jane Austen's characters go from one place to another, almost always a change occurs. And if you cross a river or an ocean, that signifies that something's happening. We change in our travels. Hamlet has just come back from the Channel Crossing, and we know that something happened there. So he looks at the clouds, and he's disturbed because they're making light of things. This is this scene where he has all these meditations on death. And um, he at one point, about one line, line 129, he says, um, how long have you been a grave maker? The clown, of all the days of year, I came to that day that our last king, Hamlet, overcame Fortinbras. Let's talk about the old <clears throat> king. How long is that since? Cannot you tell that? Every fool, <laughs> this isn't humbling, every fool, can tell that. It was the very day that young Hamlet was born, he that is mad and sent into England. Now what's the importance of this fact? That this guy, this guy took his job on the very day Hamlet was born. Why would Shakespeare do that? I think it's his way of showing that death has been with him all along, as it is for every one of us. And Hamlet, I think, comes to that conclusion here. This is a, a long meditation on death. Um, he not only learns that the gravedigger began his job on the day that he was born, he learns that Yorick, who was the court jester, is buried here, and he will see a skull. He looks at it and says, line 180, now tell your jokes, now go on and do what you did. Not one now to mock your own grinning, quite chapfallen. 
Now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick, to this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that pretty, Horatio. Tell me one thing. He's saying, now laugh, Yorick, because it's a skull. Hamlet is meditating on the fact that all of us are going to be there one day. And it seems to me this, this is part of the change that takes place on the Channel Crossing. He has this long meditation on Alexander because Alexander was this great conqueror of the world, about line 195. Um, as thus Alexander died, Alexander was buried, Alexander returned to dust, the dust is earth, of earth we make loam. And why have that loam where he was converted? Might they not stop a barrel? So they're going to use the very dust that he turned into to plug a barrel. How's that for humbling? <laughs> this is this great king who's being used for a barrel stop. Um, the procession comes with Ophelia and Laertes jumps into the grave. You all know what happens in, in Laertes and Hamlet fight. But turn to Act 5, Scene 2, because this is the climactic moment of the whole play. Hamlet has been invited in for a recreation match with Laertes. Claudius is going to bet on Hamlet, but we know from earlier scenes that Laertes and um, Claudius have plotted to kill Hamlet's, to take his life. They're going to poison, Laertes is going to poison his sword tip, and um, Claudius is going to put poison in the drink so that if the sword tip doesn't work, when, after they, when Hamlet wants to take a break, he will give him the wine, and when he does, he will die. And he's doing this because he knows the people love Hamlet. If anything untoward happens, there will be a revolt. So he wants to do everything he can to cover his tracks. He wants to make this look like an accident. This is just another indication of his shrewdness. But look at 5.2 in the very beginning. <clears throat> so much for this, sir. Now shall you see the other? Do you remember all the circumstances? Remember? Look at that. Remember, Lord? Horatio's saying, how could I forget it? This is his dearest friend. I hope everybody hears that. When he says, remember it, my lord, he's saying, are you nuts? How can I because we learned in Act 3 that Hamlet finally told Horatio what the ghost revealed. So Horatio is the only one who knows this complete story. And that's important because when he, Hamlet dies, he'll say, tell my story. Because nobody will understand it otherwise. Remember it, my lord? Sir, in my heart there was a kind of fighting who would not let me sleep. Methought I lay worse than the um, mutinies in the balbos. Rashly in praise be rashness for it. Let us know. Our indiscretions sometimes serve us well when our deep plots do pall, they fade, and that should learn us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. This is Logos. This is Marcy's Logos. He's reached a point of realizing that in, in spite of the fact that all of our plans because all of us go into life thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. When our plans don't work out the way we want, and sometimes blessings come out of them, that, that we still turn up and end up in a blessing kind of state, that there's a God looking out for us who will take, bring good out of evil. Our deep, our deep plots do pall, they do fade, and that should teach us there's a divinity that shapes our... Refute them how we are, no matter how bright we think we are, Next to God, they're rough-hewed, but he will bring something better out of them. Then he says, he went down below because something moved him. He opened up the commission and he saw that he was being sent to his death. 
He went and rewrote the commission for the death of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and then sealed it up. And at line 47, Horatio says, how was this sealed? Why, even in that was heaven ordinate. I had my father's signet in my purse, which was the model of that Danish seal, folded the writ up in the form of the other, subscribed it, gave it the impression, you know, it's a wax seal, but, so it looked like the commission had not been opened up the envelope. Now the next day was our sea fight, and um, what to this was sequent, you already know. But his line, why, even in that was heaven ordinate. What's he saying? Why, even there God was looking out for me, right? Remember, he had this misgiving. Where did that come from? He went down and opened it, opened up the commission, closed it up. How could he have done that unless he had his father's seal? And he happened to have, so is this, are these just coincidences? Not to Hamlet, because he says, even in that was heaven ordinate. Ordinate means ordinary, lawful. Ordinate. The servant comes out, one of the minor lords, and says they're ready for the fencing match, and Hamlet again says, I feel a misgiving here in my heart. Um, line 200. Um, Horatio says to Hamlet, he's going to lose the wager because the king's wagered on him. And Hamlet says, no, he's been practicing. We know that this guy's a really... He's got an Achilles in him somewhere. Um, if your mind, Hamlet um, says he's, it's but foolery, but it's such a kind of gains giving as would perhaps trouble a woman. Says, I've got this misgiving again. Horatio says, I'll go tell them you're not fit. And he says, no. It's, um, um, it's a kind of gains giving. Horatio, if your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall the repair hither and say you are not fit. Now, it seems to me these are the most important words in the whole play. And in some sense, they're almost the most important in all of Shakespeare's canon. They're extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Hamlet says, Horatio says, I'll go, I'll go forestall it. I'll tell them you're not fit. He's just had a channel crossing. Not a whit. We defy augury. There is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows, what is it to leave betimes? Let be. The readiness is all. What is he saying? Can somebody paraphrase that? <clears throat> Anybody? It's the journey. Hmm? It's the journey. Can you relate that more specifically to the words, Mark? He's talking there, tis not to come if it's not to come, it will be now, but not be now, it will come. He, he, I think, to, to me anyway, when I read it, he realizes that it's going to end, but the journey for him, as he's discovering this, is what, he, is what it's about, not necessarily the end-all, be-all, and he struggles with that. Maybe all that just saying, we defy augury, which is divination or the Lord's plan. And by saying that there's special providence in the fall of a sparrow, by saying even it's something as seemingly unimportant in the macro scheme 
as a bird dying in the forest, God is aware of. Yeah. So he's saying in all, even the nuanced mechanisms of our life, the Lord has pieced it together bit by bit. And if something is going to happen, it is going to happen. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Right. And at that moment, he kind of relinquishes his control because earlier in the play, he says to be or not to be, which is kind of like his trying to grasp on his faith, yeah. but then he, he, he relinquishes and says, let be, and he just kind of gives in and understands the Lord's plan. Sorry? He's saying it is what it is. Well, he said, I mean, yeah, but it, 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 remember, I mean, I think what James just said is, does it, well, does anybody want to add anything? Just what James is, Jane, well, did you have something? It, may, it makes me think of when Jesus was in the garden and he finally said, I accept it. Yeah. And that's kind of what he's saying there, except what happened. You're taking away my last comment on this. No, 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 I'm so glad. No, I'm really glad for you, because that's where I, no, no, I'm really glad that you saw that. To go back to what James was saying a second ago, um, if this is God that looks out for the fall of the sparrow, and he's already had the channel crossing, you know, where he's, he saw that God was watching over him, here it's about whether to go in or not, because he doesn't know what's going to happen. He said, if it's, gonna, if it's not going to happen, then it will happen now. It's not, so it doesn't matter whether it's going to happen. What matters, and this is James, what, so what do you do with the readiness is all? Put that in your, your reading. Explain that. What does he mean by that? Uh, I think just moving forward with an action. Um, He's done all he could do. He's come to him. Yes, but, and I, re, I love your word relinquish, I think, is that, was that the word you used? I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> if you, well, here, let me put it differently. Look, look at Hamlet at the beginning of the play and watch him do whatever he does. Is this man the same man or has he changed? How? I, I definitely believe understanding his role in it because earlier he was, he was the, the orchestrator in the symphony, but now he just realizes he's, he's one player in a much larger mechanism. Yeah. If you look at Hammond all the way through the play, he is a man who cannot trust anybody. This word of trust, I think, is so. Jim used the James used the word relinquish. None of them. Could. He cannot trust. He cannot trust anybody. Who can he trust? Horatio is the one person, and it takes him a while to tell him what happened. He trusts Horatio, except for Horatio, nobody. In one sense, he's the mirror image of Claudius. He has to control everything. He cuts his ties with Ophelia because she's she allows herself to be used. Who can he trust? Here, at the end, he's saying, if it's going to be, it will be. If it's not, it won't. The most important thing is to be, the readiness is all. And I read that, I think he's saying, he's relinquished. <laughs> what you said was just, I cannot tell you how glad I was. It's like Christ in the garden. He's trusting God. If this, man, if this God watches out for the fall of a sparrow. Yeah. So what we see right now in his words is this man is is finally trusting to a point where he relinquishes what's going to happen. What's important is the readiness at all. And it, it seems to me it's important in this sense. Because if there is a God work, if a God is watching out for us, then the most important thing is to be ready as his instrument. Is he going to control what goes in? Does he have a plot? He doesn't go into the fencing with any of that. What will be, will be. But what he takes into it is not what he would have taken into it three scenes earlier, five scenes earlier. This is a different man. The Channel Crossing happened, the meditations on death. One critic, um, Harold Bloom, describes him, he says he, ha he has this, how does he, this 
wonderful, beautiful disinterestedness. And I can't see it except in Christ in the garden. And in that sense, it's godly to completely, well, I'm giving it away, where's Christ? To completely give up your life trusting in another, to just be ready to do what happens, to do as well as you can, is all he can do. And it, that answers part of my question. Is this the, so, is the justice that's done at the end when he kills Claudius the same justice that his father wanted of him at the beginning? Because at the end, the quest is over, right? He fulfills it. He finally kills him. Remember, at prayer, he said, this is a fine way to avenge my father. This is higher in salary <laughs> and paying him to go to heaven. He wants to damn him. Does he go into the final scenes with those motives? Is this the same Hamlet? So there's justice or... By the way, this is really interesting. Remember what happens when... What gives it away is... Interesting, Gertrude. She drinks the cup and she recognizes she's poisoned and she says poison is the king. Laertes and Hamlet scuffle. They trade swords and in that moment they wound each other with with the poison sword. And then Hamlet says, when the queen says, I'm, I'm, I've been poisoned, Hamlet, this is a good leader. He says, close the doors. Immediately, he says, treason. He's a leader. He's, I mean, he's kingly. He says, and does he know that it's the king? He doesn't yet, but he will. And when he finds out, the first thing he does, kill him. Is this the same man that received the quest? Does he... Is this the same man that received the question in the beginning? Are his motives the same, or or has or have they changed? And and Hamlet says to Horatio, um, this is those wonderful lines. Horatio says. Um, <clears throat> Horatio loves him. He loves this man. Um, um, Laertes and Hamlet exchange forgiveness with each other. This is an extraordinary ending. The two men, they exchange forgiveness. They forgive each other. Um, Line 317, it's poison tempered by himself. Exchange forgiveness with me, noble Hamlet. They do. He dies. Hamlet says, make free of it. I follow thee. I am dead. Horatio, wretched queen, adieu. You that look pale and tremble at this chance that are but mutes or audience of the act, they don't know what's going on. They don't have a clue. They don't, they don't see. Had I but time as this fell sergeant, death is strict in his... She, here it is. Get on. <laughs> um, um, is strict in his arrest. Oh, I could tell you, but let it be Horatio. I am dead. Thou livest. Report me in my cause aright. He doesn't want his Cleos stained. His honor. Horatio, never believe it. I'm not going to stick around. He loves him. I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. What would a Roman do? Kill himself. Kill himself, yeah? I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here's some. Here's yet some liquor left. He's going to drink the point because he doesn't want to live now. His dearest friend is dead. Hamlet, has thou a man, give me the cup, let go by heavens, I'll have it. Oh God, Horatio, what a wounded name thinks standing thus unknown. Can we leave it with, unju- with the injustices not answered? Not for Hamlet. It, it's got to come to light. The truth has got to come out. 
Um, things standing thus unknown shall live behind me if thou dost ever hold me in thy heart. I love this line, absent thee from felicity a while. Wait before you go to blessedness, before you die and go to the next kingdom. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while. Wait before you go to the next life. And in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Horatio is over the dead body, a few lines now down below, now cracks a noble heart, good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. It's his prayer over the dead body. Um, we're out of time. I had questions. You all know them. Let me just say, I mean, you may disagree, but it seems to me that here in Hamlet, like Othello, that... Um, um, remember that according to this, this tragic paradigm that this reversal takes place, a change takes place and the nobility that a person has which is wounded, broken it happens to all the tragic heroes it does with Hamlet but here at the end of this reversal takes place he sees in a way that he didn't before he has a sense of providence he trusts God says the readiness is all he gives up his life and in the next act um, if we say he, he, he kills the king in the same spirit in which he received the quest, then I'd say to, to make that argument, you have to ignore the channel crossing and the graveyard scene. If you read those in, you have to say, Hamlet's changed. He's not the same man. He, he, he's, he's come to terms with death in a way that's remarkable. And there's, I'm, there's this an extraordinary Christ-like disinterest where he completely lets go of himself to say what will be will be. So the man who kills the king at the end, it seems he doesn't kill him with the same motives um, as the man as the man earlier. So I would argue that like the like the tragic heroes we've seen, he's come out of that old epic code, that warrior code that his father passed on to him in the quest. That what he's doing here at the end is not vengeance. It's justice, and it's, it's the occasion for the cleansing that takes place in, at the end of all tragedies. And that cleansing is important because it's the preparation for the next order that will come up, where the injustices aren't carried over. So there's a new order about to, it's prepared for the new order that's going to come <coughs> So the action of a tragedy, remember, um, is always towards death and final things, but the question is how do we read those Final things, and I'm suggesting here that what happens at the end is extraordinary. But I think, too, the, um, after his, the queen died, and it is just as he, it's like he's gotten rid of all the bad All of it's gone, right? It is. He said, even though he loved his mother, he saw. And he didn't kill her, the king did with the poison. Uh, right, yeah. I know that. But she said, the king. Justice is that we've gotten rid of the two that. Yeah. That's not very Christ. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, because it's not. Why? I, I mean, you can sit there and say, okay, what you said, I, I do agree with what you said, but at the end, it's not very Christ like to go kill somebody. Why? Wait, would you say Joan of Arc was not a saint? She was at war? Are you saying that anybody in battle fighting an enemy or evil? Oh, no. To kill somebody is but evil. If, but if you want to compare Hamlet to Christ, 
That's that's pretty long putt. I don't want you to take any more flight. I realize exactly. It's about forgiveness. I mean, there is justice and there is. He saw it as getting rid of evil. Wait, wait, yeah, and evil. And wait, does Christ not want justice in the world? And and the question is, when you're facing injustices in the world and evil, is it wrong if somebody's committed? Is it wrong for a policeman to kill somebody who's committing evil in, in a? Let's say, or a husband taking a gun and killing somebody who's going to rape a wife. Well, is that a, is that an evil act? No, that isn't. The, que- the question that has to be asked for all of us always is, what are the motives behind our actions? What's what's our interior disposition? And it seems to me with the play, remember I said Shakespeare never judges. He didn't judge at the end of Othello. He doesn't hear. We either have to read this as having the judgment in it, or we miss it. Does he kill Claudius in the spirit of? Um, vengeful hatred and wanting to damn him, yeah. or is it instinctive, impulsive, not premeditated, to kill the man who the queen has just said, that's the king, and he kills him? So you have the king arrested and you have a trial. <laughs> you don't take it upon yourself to just no. willy nilly going around killing each other. Just generally, in the end, any 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 phrase or story that yeah. has anybody to do something with Christ-like generally doesn't end with you kill the guy. Yes, I agree. With you. I, yeah. Or you killed yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's unintended consequences. A whole bunch of sad, sad tragedy in here. But at the end of the day, if you want to compare somebody to Christ, it's pretty far stretched to say at the end, what happened? I killed him. Yeah, but the, at least let me just leave it with discussion. If somebody's committing, I'm just repeating. If somebody, if somebody's doing something evil, um, is killing that person, and and doing something that will bring justice. Anti to Christ, contrary to Christ, or with him. I mean, just. I think of the Old Testament and the Red Sea. How Moses directed to do that, and that was that was an action of God. So we're now.